Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, thank you for giving thanks for me coming down here, Joe, in your prayer. I think I was greeted over and over again this morning with, Hello, where's Kim? (laughs) I've never felt so welcome. (laughs) She was not able to come down with me, but she sends her greetings. Um, uh, We we just weren't able to to make that work this morning in terms of care for Nathan and all as well. So, um, but she wishes that she could be down here very much with you and, and and does send her greetings, as does Trinity Church. We are just thrilled and give thanks for you uh, down here in Lewis County and the work that is going on and super, super excited to continue to hear all the good news of things going on. I was asked to preach this morning um, specifically about parenting teenagers uh, in, in the promises of God. Um, I don't know if there are any teenagers here uh, or not, but, uh, but this sermon is not just it's not just about teenagers. It will not um, be, uh, there will be some application, a lot of application that parents of teens can be thinking about and teenagers and those entering those teen years can be thinking about. But it is truly a disciple-oriented sermon. I, I promise that God will hit every one of you hard between the eyes and in your heart as you consider with me this text this morning. He has good things to say to those who, who have ears to listen. He really does in this passage. Parenting little ones takes a lot of grace. <laughs> Parenting little ones takes much grace. We had uh, our Sabbath uh, dinner last night, um, and uh, the kids came, and we've got now uh, 14 grandchildren and number 15 on the way, and I think we had four or five that were under the age of two um, that came early with their parents while we are getting ready, and the, the, the cacophony of noise in our kitchen was glorious and very loud. Um, and, and wonderful, and I looked, uh, I looked at the uh, moms that were there, so grateful that my wife was providing dinner as they looked at her with uh, their tired bodies and eyes taking care of these little ones. It's a glorious thing to watch. Parenting little ones takes much grace. Raising teenagers takes a different kind of grace, and God gives grace like manna. God gives grace like manna, just what you need for today. So important to remember. Um, It's so so often that in in the work of parenting, as in so many other activities, you know you have a long haul ahead of you. And if you, if you think to yourself, do I have enough grace to make it this long haul that is ahead of me? The answer is always no. Because God only gives grace for today. He doesn't give grace for tomorrow. Tomorrow's grace comes, comes tomorrow. Grace comes to us like manna. If he gave you all that grace, it would, go, it would be ruined just like the manna. But every day you get up, his mercies are new every morning, and he gives grace again. That's the way, that's the way we live our Christian lives. From day to day, grace to grace. Grace, grace for parents to believe the promises. Grace to grow in wisdom. Grace to love. 
Grace to speak the truth in love. Grace to shift tactics and strategies as you will have to. Grace to find methods that work for you while employing the commands and principles that you must obey. Grace to find methods um, that, that, are, that work for both you and methods to give to your children now growing up in terms of how to obey the Lord. The scriptures teach that God gives so much grace that what we might be tempted to think that we can just sin, that grace may abound. And by God's grace, the grace we give our covenant children in their transitioning years will cause them to wonder the same at times. Our homes are to be filled with grace, overflowing with grace. And by God's grace, my, our teenagers grew up through rough and tumble times and are sustained in their faith by the grace of God now to be young adults um, and, and, and walking with the Lord. And, it, and it's all the grace of God. Let me share that grace with you. This grace comes to us through faith. A faith that believes the promises that God has given us for us and for our children. You know, we say we're saved by faith. We are not saying that we are saved by some strong urge or feeling within ourselves. And that we need to grow that strong urge and feeling within ourselves so that we can sustain that faith. No, no, no. Our faith is a trust in the faithfulness of someone else. Our faith is our trust in the faithfulness of God. It is not in, it, it's not a trust in ourselves to keep the faith. <laughs> it doesn't work. It is faith that it is faith that says, it doesn't matter what I am. It doesn't matter what I believe it do, in the moment. It doesn't matter um, how well I'm doing right now. I, what am I trusting? What am I trusting with regard to my own sanctification? What a glorious uh, uh, shorter catechism question this morning to go through. What am I trusting? I'm trusting in grace, grace to work, continue to work in me. Where's that grace coming from? It's coming from the Father. What has he promised? That he's going to finish the work. He's going to complete the work that he began in you and in your kid. That's what he's promised. What are you supposed to do? Believe him. Trust him. That's it. You, you trust him. You trust him in a way that brings forth lively works, yes, but that all comes because of just one thing. You believe that he's faithful to his word. You believe he's faithful to his promises. These are the merciful promises, the flow of blessings to a thousand generations. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, the second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we are told not to make idols um, for, for ourselves at all. And he says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Thousands of what? Thousands of generations, it's clear, especially if you move on to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Therefore, know the, the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. How, how long is a thousand generations? <laughs> We're nowhere near it yet. Nowhere near a thousand generations since creation. 
And Ezekiel, using a prophetic synonym, says this. He, he says, they, their children, and their children's children, forever and everlasting covenant. And so while we see that covenantal faithfulness is something that we must keep, the foundation of the success of the covenant is God's faithfulness, established through Abraham, the father of all who believe. In Genesis 17, um, uh, the Lord says to Abraham, I, well, he's Abraham at that moment, his name is going to be changed to Abraham because he's going to be the father of many nations, he says in, in chapter 17. He says, I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Well, good for him. I'm not, descent, I'm not a descendant of Abraham, except that Paul says, I am. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. They're yours. Those amazing promises given to Abraham. And look at the world around us today. How many descendants of Abraham are there? It is. It, it, it's growing and growing. It, it's hard for us to count. Maybe it's a little easier than counting the sand of the sea, but we're not done yet. Maybe it's a little easier than counting all the stars in the heavens, but we're not done yet. But the descendants of Abraham are all over the world. A man who couldn't have any children, whose wife could not have any children. And God said, watch. Watch what I'm going to do. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that faith that he had, God said, I'm going to be giving it to your children and your children's children to a thousand gen generations as well. So for all of us, how do you keep covenant with God? The heart of keeping covenant, the heart of keep keeping covenant, the heart of covenant keeping is promise believing. No other religion is this way. The heart of covenant keeping is believing that God is good to his word and then living like it. So today, we live in a world that hates children. Hates children. This world hates little children, murders them, neglects them, and abdicates their responsibilities to educate them. We hate teenagers in a different way. We propagate the lies that adolescence by nature is a time of rebellion against parents. It's just gonna happen. Our youth worship culture Social media ghettos and the demand for autonomy at any age all promote this lie. The modern evangelical church caters to the folly of autonomous, youth-centered entertainment and self-love ministry. In stark contrast to that, we are called to think biblically about this time of life for our kids and how we might best shepherd them as parents and as the church. And this takes grace. And God gives grace. In Psalm 127, the end of uh, Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies or contend with their enemies in the gate. And in Malachi, the prophet is speaking against uh, men who have not been faithful to their wives. And, and he, he says to them, um, don't you know that I, I created a union to be one, that you're to be one, um, the husband and wife, one flesh. And, and he says, 
Um, and why one? Malachi, uh, through the Lord, the Lord says through Malachi, he seeks godly offspring. Why does God want marriage? Remember, it's his idea. He defined it. He instituted it. He, he, he uh, describes and, 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 and puts the boundaries upon it. One, one main reason that God wants marriage, by the way, is not your happiness. One of the main reasons for God creating marriage is that he might see godly offspring grow up generation after generation after generation. These individuals, this grace that is to go through generations, these individuals that are your children are not autonomous beings, but members of covenant households who are to mature in their faith and understanding of the promises and obligations laid upon them. The goal is faithful, godly offspring, standing at our side against the darkness and walking in the light. There's no planned generation gap in covenant succession. There is no such thing as a generation gap in God's providence, in God's plan. The next generation joins us in the victorious spread of Christ's gospel and his call to disciple the nations. They are to join with us. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He did not say, as for me and my... Hang on a second. Hey, guys, would you like to come and follow Jesus with me? Raise your hand. No, he didn't say that. He said, kids, we're taking the world. Let's go. Here we go. Kids get up in my house, uh, and they would say, so what are we doing today? And someone taught me this. So what are we doing today? And I said, same thing we do every day. We're just going to go take the world for Christ again. We're, we're taking the world, kids. That's what we're doing. And that was, that's the mindset in your home. That is to be the mindset in your home. And therefore, because of that, boring testimonies should be commonplace for our young people. Boring testimonies. So how did you become a Christian? I don't know. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and spankings and going to school, I, I guess. <laughs> Except there's absolutely nothing boring if their testimonies include growing up in faithfulness against the wiles of the devil. That's a miracle. Ephesians. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Your kids grow, and grow up and stand against the devil and the wiles of the devil, all of his plans, all of his cheats, all of his hypocrisies, all of his lies, all, every way that he's going to tempt them as they grow up, and they stand against that? That's a miracle. That's the work of God in your home and in, in the lives of you, in your life, and in the life of your children. And so look at grace with me in, in this passage, the overwhelming grace of God in Romans 5. 
Again, the last two verses of Romans 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These verses conclude an explanation by Paul about the impact of God's grace given to those in Christ. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The declaration of the gospel is a victory cry over sin and death for anyone and everyone who is found in Jesus Christ. You cannot sin too much that Christ can't handle it. You cannot sin too long that Christ can't handle it. That the grace that comes to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can wash it all clean and make you new, can, can, can bury you in Christ and raise you up in Christ to be a new man. It doesn't matter. The call of the gospel is to everyone who will call upon him and and believe and be saved. It's yours for the taking. That's the love of God that, that that is proclaimed through the gospel of Jesus to everyone. You could never add up enough sins to override the overwhelming grace that is ours in Christ. A home full of this grace, a home full of this grace, thinking about God's grace this way, will become a place where your teenagers may be tempted to think, hey, wait, can we just sin and grace will abound? Paul expects that question. He expects the grace in our lives experienced and the grace-filled homes that we raise our children in, in the grace that we preach, kid, your sins are forgiven again. And again, did you hear it this morning? Your sins are forgiven. All of them are forgiven again in Christ Jesus. This is cool. I can just go out, do whatever I want. I can just send up a storm and then I get to hear my my sins are forgiven again. Well, no, no, no. We're going to deal with chapter six here. But I'm glad you're wondering. And the reason I'm glad you're wondering is because that's how deep and wide and high the love of Christ and his grace is for you. So chapter 6 will address that wrong-headedness, but a home filled with such unconditional accepting grace should anticipate that such wrong-headedness will come up. And this is a good thing. This will provide an atmosphere in your home where your kids will know that they can come to you freely with anything. And especially as they grow up into the preteen and teen years, You have got to be, you have got to be the place that they go to with their questions, with their concerns, with their sins, with their temptations. You've got to be the place where they come. How are you going to be that place? If you are not, if you are not the kind of of person that they see just dispenses grace as though it was never going to run out because it isn't. And you won't do that unless you believe it for yourself. And you won't do that unless you believe the promises of God, especially in the tough days. You will not not be that kind of person unless you know the persevering grace of God in you. Why does he put up with you? Don't ask why am I putting up with my kid. Why is God putting up with you? Because he's gracious. Because his, his tender mercies are new every morning. Because he never stops forgiving to anyone who comes and says, please forgive me. That, 
that's, that's not what you like. That's not how a free man lives. I don't want to be enslaved to this stuff. And he says again and again and again, I forgive you. It's washed clean. Let's, let's move on now. Let's, let's move on away from this. And so the question gets asked, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Of course not. Meganoita is the Greek. Meganoita. Just learn to say that. Meganoita. Of course not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Don't you realize who you are? You're a free man. You're a free woman now. You don't have to live in that muck anymore. You can walk out of it. You can walk away from it. It goes on, and he, and he says, and, and let me read again just a few of these verses. Or, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. The picture that Paul wants you to see is that you, when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. You were buried with Christ with all your sin. It all went down with him in his death burial. And then you were raised just as sure as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You were raised with Christ into new life, without the sin, without the old man, the old constitution, the old enslavement that you began with. That's what your baptism did. And so parents, one of the things you want to do for your children is constantly help them to identify themselves in their baptism, in the mark that God put on them that said, you are mine. And you're dead to sin. It's, it's not you. It's not your identity anymore. Christ took it away, and you're new in Christ now. We are new. It's always good to say that too. You're like me. We're new. We're a whole new people. We're a peculiar people, Peter says. We're humanity 2.0. Regardless of our theological differences on baptism, we are all to teach our children early based on the promises of God to parents to believe them for themselves and reckon their faith as theirs early on, certainly also watching for more and more fruit as they grow with us in the covenant. This is why it is our practice to baptize infants or to baptize professing children at an early age and then to admit them to the table as covenant members. They're growing up with us. We're growing up in the faith. They're growing up in the faith. And the means of grace that God has given is, is the means that he's going to continue to increase that trust in him, that, that experience of liberty in him, the desire and ability to follow him. The desire and ability to follow him. 
kids, adults, all of you, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's going to be hard. Okay? Paul says that. You have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for God is at work in you. For God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. To will and to do. To desire, because I don't want to follow him. It's going to be terrible to have to obey him in this. And God's going to work in you to will. And God's going to work in you to do. I can't do that. Well, God's working in you to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's going to be hard work. But God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. This is what we're doing all together. And so a lot of times it was um, Matthew Henry's father. Matthew Henry's father, I believe he had four children. Uh, Matthew just being one of the sons, four sons at least. Um, and, and Isaac, I believe it was his name. Um, he, he, he said that when the kids were acting up, when the boys were acting up, he would go and grab them by their baptism. He'd go and grab them by their baptism. Because... Listen again. I'm going to read the the rest of our passage here. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace." Now imagine you're grabbing your son, your daughter, and, and saying, wait a second, let me read to you all of verses 11 through 14. There's an easier way to do it, to grab them by their baptism. You just grab them and say, we're Christians. We don't do that. We, we don't do that. So having been baptized into Christ's death, your children with you are on a trajectory. But like us, it comes in fits and waves. When they are tempted to disobey Christ, just like any other disciple, Paul calls us to grab them and say, hey, you're baptized. You can't do that. Someone else has bought you now. And he's bought you unto freedom. Doesn't feel like it all the time because there's this, there's this battle of the flesh still that is in there. So this remaining sin. And the battle that's going on in you, you're experiencing is between the spirit and the flesh. And as you grow out of young childhood into your preteen and teen years, you feel that in ways you never felt it before. And you're going to need to be told by your older brothers and sisters, by your parents, by those who have been walking in the faith also. You can't do that. You're baptized. God owns you. Jesus loves you too much. So they're then to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. How do I stop sinning? Well, I have to identify myself in that baptism. I have to remember who I am in Christ. I have to remember that I was, I was crucified, Paul says in Galatians 6. I was crucified in Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who I am. That's who I am. Now, you're going to have to tell them that again and again and again, just like you have to tell yourself. It should be the, it's the kind of thing that we talk about in our families, in our homes, 
all the time. And, and we have new applications for it all the time. You should just be looking for those opportunities to talk to them and, and about that with them because their lives are changing, sometimes rapidly. I don't know the last time I saw the Stout Kids, but man, all of you guys are like a foot taller than the last time. Everything changes so quickly, and they need, they need to hear this over and over again about what it means to be in Christ. Paul then begins to work out this grace into our daily lives. By grace, he says, we are reckoned dead to our sins, and by grace, we believe and act as though we believe ourselves to be in Christ. That, that's how we, am I in Christ? You need to ask yourself, am I in Christ? And if you say no, then Luther says, well, man, say your prayers. Get on your knees and do the deed. Just, just come to Jesus now. Maybe it's a, another come to Jesus moment. You know, the, the problem, the only difference with teenagers is not that teenagers go through a crisis of faith. Do I really believe I'm saved? Or do I really love this as my own? They all will. Is this, has this just been force-fed upon me? Or is this really mine? Everybody does that. And see, the thing is, that it's not just that teenagers are doing this and no one else ever does. The difference is that it's becoming a self-conscious crisis for the first time or first times in their lives. One of the things you can say to a, your, your uh, Christian kid when he says, I'm not even sure, I, I believe, is this mine? You can say to them, yeah, I have that question time to time also. Yeah, welcome to life, kid. Well, welcome to time that I have to be renewed. Why does God call us weekly to a covenant renewal service? Maybe it's because we need to have that covenant renewed. Oh, like often. <laughs> like, like maybe every week, maybe every seven days, it needs to be like a new creation again. Oh, yeah, and you, and you begin to talk to your kids about this. This is something that we need. We have to, we have to get. We have to hear again from the Lord. Your sins are forgiven. We have to hear again from the Lord. Um, you're mine, says Jesus. Come, follow me. Let's go. And I mean in this particular area of your life as the Holy Spirit uh, applies that now to you personally or into your family. So, and so having grown up in a Christian home, the Christian teen, like any other teen, now has more knowledge more imagination, more strength, more testosterone, and a host of new temptations. One result of this is that your teenager needs a father or a mother and a mother more than ever before. You thought, well, they're, they're not little anymore. They can feed themselves. They can dress themselves. They can clothe, you know, I, they don't need me as much. No, they need you more. This, this is the time where you shift uh, into a higher gear because you're going you're gonna to need more power. You're going to need more love. You're going to need more patience. You're going to need more long-suffering. You're going to need more wisdom. You're going to need more kindness. <laughs> and you're going to have to start disciplining in a different way. As the years, as the years go, come by from the 9, 10, pre-teens, adolescence starts, at some point, spanking is out. But st sin still must have consequences, and parents still must discipline their children. And you want to magnify those consequences for the sake of teaching. That's what you were doing when you were spanking. It was a cute little sin over there. We can all laugh about it. But we still want to bring swift 
painful, discipline, uh, artificial means of teaching the kid. That is, that, God doesn't like that. We can't do that. And, and so get my, let me get your attention. We need to ask God's forgiveness. That's what you're doing. Well, what do I do now in these later years? Well, you, a number of things you can think about. You do not subsidize sin or rebellion or laziness with free room and board. Second Thessalonians says a man won't work and he's not going to eat. And we live by that. Okay? So you don't, you don't, they, they can grow up and they get this mindset. Their flesh can kind of tell them, um, this is cool. I get up every morning. I got free food. I get up, you know, and I just, I just kind of get whatever I want. Here I am. Um, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, it should matter what they do. They need to learn. It may mean losing privileges. Um, so in, in our home, one of the things that happened as the teens are going up, you, you're not spanking anymore, so, but you, you've, you've granted them certain um, uh, freedoms and, and certain privileges. You let them have friends over. You let them go and spend the night at friends. You give them car keys. And you, uh, and you give them tonight's dinner. But if they do certain things that might that that you could connect to these privileges need to be taken away because you can't be a hypocrite you can't um you can't speak to your mother that way and and then go out and be kind to somebody else's mother or or the, or the friends down the street that's called hypocrisy and jesus hates it we're probably better stay here and work on this for a little while first you, you can't export what isn't what what isn't in your home first you see without being a hypocrite and so, we, and so there, there might be, you're, you're not, see, now what I'm not doing is I'm not grounding my kid. I want you to go to your room and I want you to feel really bad for the next 30 minutes or 30 days or three months or whatever we're going to do now. And after you're done feeling really bad for those three months and you, come, you really kind of realize how bad you are, then we'll talk. Well, that just, that just takes the wind out of the fellowship of, of everybody. No, you, you, you discipline you don't punish, you discipline. There might be a removal of, of a privilege or an opportunity to do something. I had, my, I had boys that had to call their lacro lacrosse coaches more than once and say, I won't be able, be able to play on the team today because uh, my dad says I've got to work out some things with mom. And the coach would call me and say, thank you. What, what a great teaching you're giving your kids. But then you, you, you remember also, you, you don't do it in a huff. You don't do it in all anger. You don't do it in shame. You're, you're, did, I don't know if you know this, but your kids are sinners. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because they came from you. So, and, and so you, you, you come alongside them, not, not just as a parent, but as a coach. Like your goal is to get them back in fellowship with God and, and, to, and, and to walk in ways that they can have their privileges back. You, you want to see success. You don't want them to just go sit in the corner somewhere and feel bad. You, you might, they, they might have to do the chore or the, you know, the chore that was given. They might have to do it two or three more times because they need to learn. You didn't do a very good job. And you know you can do a better job. And so you're going to get that job for the next three days. This is not punishment, you ought to say. This is discipline. This is helping you to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. That's why I'm giving you these, this chore now to do three more times. That's different than... That was awful, and because of that, you're in trouble, and now I'm going to, the punishment I'm giving you is you got to do it three more times. The, the, the difference is night and day in terms of uh, uh, how you're instructing, coaching, and coming alongside your kid. 
So think about that. We all must learn to be our best at home first. And in addition, restitution should be paid. Public confession for public sins need to be made. And all with a thankful spirit. So um, you, you mouthed off in, in some particular way to, um, and, and you're, the, the, child, the child did, and now you're, you're, he's asking for forgiveness. But a whole bunch of the other kids heard. He should publicly confess his sin to all those that heard. I'm, I'm, I need to ask your forgiveness. That's not a faithful way to follow Jesus, and I shouldn't have spoken that way. Please forgive me, all of you. Um, that, that should be, um, I need to confess a sin, and I forgive you, ought to be common language in your home. Common language. It shouldn't be extraordinary. It, it should be ongoing, regular language in your home. And your aim all along, from beginning to end, from little kid to leaving the house, should be a movement from beneficent totalitarianism in the youngest years to almost zero house rules in the late teen years. You want to be a, uh, a totalitarian, totalitarian dictator who's a, who's a good guy, um, who decides everything for the kids when they're little. Uh, you, may, you, you don't get to decide when you go to bed. Maybe I'll let you choose the red or the green pajamas. But that's it, right? But our temptation always, our temptation always is to, do, is to avoid discipline when they're little and the sin is cute and easy to just take care of. When it's really important that, they, that that training take place, you, you, and you're qualified because you're not angry, to wanting to really lock them down when they're 14 or 15 or 16 years old because they really can embarrass you, you think. They, they really, you can really take their sin personally, which you shouldn't. Um, and, and, and so you have this tendency to want to react and, and get back at it and get even at. And what you should be doing is learning to let, and, and so you end up putting more rules and more rules and more rules. And instead, you should be l letting the reins go. There should be more and more freedom. You want them to have the opportunity to make more and more decisions in the home with you and live with those consequences of those decisions where you can continue to coach them before they're off on their own, before they're off completely on their own. So this is what it means to love teenagers. Keeping in mind that they are to stand with us in the gate, we must avoid the temptation to promote a generation gap mentality and instead cultivate a covenant community culture. That's why we don't have the teen worship room down the hall. Right? No, you're with us. We, we want you with us. So what is the second greatest commandment, by the way, to parents? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? <laughs> the answer is the teenager living in your home who often appears to be less lovable than when he was a cute little toddler. 1 Timothy 5 says, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy teaches us that the commandments of God are even more important in the home. So uh, we're teaching our kids not to be hypocrites by ourselves not being hypocrites also. Our, 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 the first place, the first neighbor that you are loving is the one that's in your home with you. That's the first neighbor. That's often the hardest one. That's your flesh. You need to deal with your flesh. 
God says, love your neighbor. God says, love your neighbor. And um, as you teach them that love, as you manifest that grace that God is pouring into you and into your life, they're catching it. They're learning to live in that same grace then as well. Loving them should be a response of our obedience to the Lord and not how we are feeling toward them. I just feel like I could. So, what did God tell you to do? Right? Loving them is a decision. Loving them is not a feeling. Loving them is a decision to treat them lawfully from the heart. And that means mean it. If you can't mean it, then confess that. That's your, that's your thing, not their thing. Well, I would love them if they would just... Is that the way God treats you? We are to love them in the way that God loves us. And so, yeah, see, I, I, it's, a, it's about loving teenagers, raising teenagers, but hopefully all of us feel the word of God working in all of us in terms of dealing with this. The goal as you're, as you're raising them up is not, to, is not obedience to a standard, as, especially in these teen years. It's not obedience to a standard, but love of the standard. It's love of the standard. And, and, and you need to think about this with regard to some of your house rules sometimes. Sometimes you can't, you, you could get them to, you can demand of them to keep a standard. And, and it's going to be like eating gravel till they can finally leave this and flee this place. And with wisdom, you may need to decide, we need to lower the standard. Now, I'm not talking about breaking God's laws. I'm talking about the, the standards that you have in your home. If, if you are not able to create an atmosphere where there's a growing love for the standard, lower the standard. Lower the standard or lose your kids. That's, that's, the, that's the thing you need to do. One of the things that happened in our home that it was, well, you all like Kim, so just my better half. She came up with this idea. It's fabulous. You know, we were doing the devotions uh, to little kids and the catechisms and, and having our family worship time. And, and then as they grew into their teen years, it got harder and harder to find the time to all sit down and, and, and do this. And, and the other thing that was happening is, you know, we would, they would be staying up later than us. We wanted to go to bed. And, and, and so one of the things that we did is we created, Kim created this thing called Tea Time. Tea Time was... Um, maybe a half hour before we were going to retire, and she'd make a pot of tea, and maybe she'd have some cookies or something, and we would just call all the kids together in, in, in the evening for a short time together. And, and during that time, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a discussion through some passage of Scripture or, or going through some family devotion thing. It was, how was everybody doing? What was the best part of your day today? Great question. What was the best part of your day? What was the hardest part of your day today? How can, how can we pray for one another tonight? As we just sipped on tea, everybody knew it was only going to be a few minutes. It wasn't going to be some huge lecture about something. It was just fellowship. And during those times, and as those times happened over and over, it was just a constant communication. We love, we care, we know it's hard, we're with you. How can I pray for you? How can you pray for me? It was as though they were becoming almost adults with us because they were and did. You're creating a home where they are learning to love the Lord and love you the way that you love the Lord. 
and love them. And this is what you're doing in, in the home. You, you have to, the other thing to think about with regard to teens is you have to pour on the affection. Again, it can be now can be more awkward. He's two feet taller than me now, or whatever, you know. So, but you have to pour it on and do not wait for them to ask for it. It will be different now, but all the more reason that you must pour it on in appropriate ways. They are young enough to be insecure, and oh boy, is it an insecure time so often. Okay? They, are, they are young enough to still be very insecure, but they're old enough that it doesn't look like it. They're hiding it from you in some ways. And most are longing for more physical affection than ever before. Most are longing for more physical affection than ever before. Secondly, in, in, in Colossians 3, it says that we are to bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We need to be, a, we need to be forgiving parents. And because your teenagers appear more responsible, often only in appearance, their sins, along with their stumbling attempts to be adults, their new clumsinesses and shortcomings, somehow seem more personally offensive. You must still discipline for sin, but you must even more than before make sure you are not taking it personally. For instance, it is true that they must respect their parents, but not necessarily because you have some inalienable right to it. And so don't act like it. When you're requiring of them to honor their father and mother, it is because the Lord has said so. It's not because of something special that I am. It's because the Lord requires this. That changes the way you think about this at all. Let me end with just reading from Deuteronomy 32. This is the Song of Moses to the next generation. Song of Moses. 32, verses 7 through 12. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in, a way, in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. Let your testimony be to your teenagers what God was doing, is doing, and will do with his people, and show them how they are a part of that story. That story that began even before Abraham, but with Abraham, with this glorious promise of what God was going to do after he had separated the peoples into nations. He was going to save them all. All the nations, God said, would be mine, and they would come through the sun, and the story began. And you're right in the middle of that story, son, daughter. You're his people. Show them how they are part of that story. Teenagers are often consumed with their own story. You see it all around here right now, don't you? you see it all over the world. This, this desperate attempt to figure out who am I? Where do I fit in this world? Why, why, is there no, why, have, why, why do I have no sense of purpose, no sense of destiny? Our children never should experience that. Not for any length of time. Because we are telling them over and over and over again, you're 
You are a character in God's most special story. Teenagers are consumed often with their own story, driven by their own desires and struggling with their growing distinct identity. And while we want to encourage that, their ownership of their faith and their Lord, they desperately need to see the larger story and how theirs is a simple part of the story, a glorious and good story, a story of grace victorious over sin. They are the next verse in the song of victory, the song of covenant, the song of Christ. Sing to them this song. Sing to them the song of glory, of God's story. I want my children to stand at the gate with me. I want them to hate sin and the devil far more than I ever have. I want them to take the banner of Christ from my hands and storm the gates of Hades with a love for Christ that far outshines the flicker of faithfulness of their father and produces fruit a hundredfold to the glory of God. And so by the grace of God, and by the grace of God alone, I will show them and live before them and speak to them that grace. The grace of our God, our Lord and Savior, the power of the Spirit at work in your home today and tomorrow. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of the gospel. Our salvation in Christ because of your unmerited, unearned favor upon us. God, we would imitate you as we come alongside our children, helping them to see the unbelievable grace of God, forgiveness, eternal life, victory over sin and death, cleansing from shame and guilt. In the words of the eternal God, I am well pleased with you. May our children rise up with us to be another generation of the kingdom of heaven where the gates of Hades shall not prevail. In Jesus' name, amen. It says in Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures, for with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. This meal is the fatness of our Father's house. Jesus Christ is the choice portion. He is the spotless lamb. Jesus Christ is more fair than all the sons of men. God has commanded his church to partake of this meal because he wants us to be nourished from the best food and best wine that ever a king set before his guests. This bread is the word made flesh. This wine is the burning love of God turned into liquid form. So come and drink of the river of God's good pleasure. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless for the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. 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 Go in peace.